Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. You see, a wholehearted person is a person who is anchored and rooted in a sense of their deep identity in Christ. I often talk about it as the experience of oneness and worthiness in Christ. And so we're not looking to get our worthiness from some other substitute. Hey friends, today's conversation with Chuck DeGroat is brought to you by Western Theological Seminary. Now Western's not just a sponsor for me, but I'm actually enrolled as a student at Western Theological Seminary. And I've got to tell you, I've got friends who talk about wanting to finish their master's so badly and just be done with it. And I'm sitting over here just in a totally different boat. As a student at Western Sem, I seriously, I want to figure out how I can be a student there the rest of my life. Because it continues to be a place that challenges me to think deeply and take seriously what it looks like to follow Jesus. Every single professor I have had is not just there to teach you and go home, but they're actually investing in your coming to life as a human being and as a follower of Jesus. Even this conversation today with Chuck is the result of a friendship after he was my professor years and years ago, and yet we still keep in touch. He still meets me for coffee to talk or to do podcasts with. And Man, I'm just so grateful for the people that Western has brought me into contact with. It has been such a gift. So seriously, if you're thinking of furthering your education, you've got to check out Western. They describe themselves as a graciously evangelical and ecumenical community of faith and learning in the Reformed tradition that serves students seeking to serve in all types of ministry roles within the Christian church, faith-based nonprofits, or other institutions like Christian school teachers. The programs at Western offer academic excellence and whole person formation through a variety of degree programs to fit your area of study and individual life circumstances. All master's level programs are provided on campus and online, making learning convenient and affordable. So head on over to westernsem.edu. I'm telling you, you won't regret it. Today's conversation with Professor Chuck DeGroat is all about the importance of knowing yourself. As an educator, I can't even begin to express just how important this conversation is and has been in my own walk as a teacher, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Hey Chuck, when we're thinking about this conversation around knowing oneself, there's a few misconceptions that I think I want to address right off the bat. The first being that this isn't a particularly Christian pursuit or doesn't really have anything to do with the life of a disciple of Jesus. Something like this is just hyper therapeutic or maybe even just this popular modern thing. You yeah. know, know yourself. Uh, can you address that? Is this a, something a Christian should be should take seriously? Yeah, you know, I, I'm always amazed when I hear that because this, this idea of knowing oneself is such a deep part of the Christian tradition, let alone scripture. And, and so I, I go back to, I mean, we, we could talk for hours about Augustine and the, the Reformation and some of the Protestant, great Protestant voices after the Reformation, like Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter wrote a 300-page-plus book called The Mischiefs of Self-Ignorance and the Benefits of Self-Acquaintance. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and that was like that. in the 1700s. So you know, it's it's always funny to me that nowadays people sort of say, well, no, that's hyper therapeutic or something when I'm like, no, actually, it's a deep part of the Christian tradition. Mm. Even the psalmist, I mean, if you, you open the book of Psalms, he's right. saying, 
search me and know me, oh God. This almost wants to understand what's going on, what's motivating me, what am I running after? All those questions seem really quite essential to to pursuing God. That's that's exactly it. And I think, you know, God, as the psalmist says, desires truth in our inmost being, right? And and how do we go about uh, discovering truth if we don't uh, take a look at the div- divisions within us, right? And scripture often mm. talks about the divided heart. And so we pay attention to these divisions so that we can live more honestly and with more integrity before God. Hmm. Oh, amen. I think maybe a second misconception, even if I was convinced that this is a, a godly pursuit or this is something I should take seriously, I think I've had this idea that, okay, I've been myself for 31 years. I, I know myself. Um, I already understand who I am. Do you ever hear someone say that, that I think I've already do know myself? What, what do yeah. you say? <laughs> Well, it's funny because I've, I've, uh, you know, one of the hats that I wear, you know, this is the hat of a therapist and I'll have folks come to me and say, yeah, I think I already know my story. I already know myself and it'll take, it'll generally take about 20 or 30 minutes before we realize that there's so much more. We're so, (laughs) we're so complex in chapter 10 of Augustine's confessions. He, he begins to talk about the vast caverns of memory within us and, and how um, infinitely spacious our souls are. And, mm. you know, there's so much within us. Uh, I suspect it takes a, a lifetime to discover uh, all of the different motivations within us, longings within us, pain within us. And so, listen, most of us are not going to spend, uh, you know, 24 hours a day uh, looking at our souls. I, I happen to think, actually, that we we neglect our souls more often than we look too much uh, toward our souls, right? Do too much navel gazing. And so I'm, I'm all for us engaging this, this work, this classic work of self-knowledge, whether that's through spiritual direction, pastoral care, therapy, friendship, whatever it might be. Hmm. I think it was Jamie Smith. I'm reading his book on Augustine recently, and he described what we're talking about as he said, psychology is cartography, map making, right? Like the, mm-hmm. we're constantly making maps of our own souls, as you put it. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, really very true. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, my first book was called Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, you know, yeah. and I, I love how scripture gives us a kind of cartography, gives us a gives us a sense that we're all in Egypt. We all struggle. We're all mm. enslaved. We're all addicted in a variety of different ways. And, and we all have to go on a journey with God. And that's, uh, that's a, that can be a challenging journey at times. But, but we go on the journey trusting that God will get us uh, where we need to go. Hmm. It's amazing. I was journaling just a few weeks ago and I stumbled upon, I do a lot of like prayer journaling. And as I'm praying and writing, I learned something about myself that, that I mean, really is not an over-exaggeration to say it's really fundamental to who I am and how I operate that I did not know, or at least I yeah. did. It wasn't on the surface until as I prayed and journaled. And I just started laughing because it was so essential and yet so under the surface that yeah. I, I really became aware that, yeah, this is going to be the work of a lifetime, really. That's, you know, that's exactly it. And sometimes these things come up in in moments where we don't expect, even in our dreams, you know. And hmm. so uh, God is always wanting wanting to make himself known to us in a variety of different ways. And I think I had a conversation earlier today with a, a good friend and uh, a really experienced 
therapist uh, who's probably taught me more about the gospel than most pastors have. And, hmm. you know, we were talking about how God makes himself known more often than not in our brokenness, in our fragility, in our pain. And there are times in which we, we wake up to uh, places of, of pain, confusion, limitation. And that's, that's when we were offered a glimpse at the complexity of, uh, of our heart, the depth of our needs, our hunger and our thirst and our longing for God. Um, these, are, these are really good things. And particularly now in a season where we're, we're uh, so isolated, where many of us are lonely, to, to ask really significant questions about, so how am I doing? Um, where is God right now in my life? When we're tempted to addiction, we're tempted to be busy, we're tempted to avoid. It's just so important. Hmm. Amen. Can you tell us a little bit more, Chuck, about why understanding oneself is so essential for healthy relationships with God and other people? I think that it begins in the creation story. I mean, God is a God in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and yet, um, God wants to expand the love, right, to, to us, his, his creation. God longs to know and be known. He made us in and for relationship. It's, it's one of the, the really interesting twists in uh, the creation story that in all the other creation stories, as far as I know, that the gods in the other creation stories created human beings to be slaves, puppets, workers, and yet God created us in and for relationship, to know and to mm-hmm. be known. And so... It's, it's who we are at our core uh, as image bearers. And that's why we're, we're such deeply relational beings. That's why I need you and you need me. That's why vulnerable, honest relationship is where we experience such incredible life. Mm, amen. I was, my niece had a birthday party several weeks ago, and I, I, I thought back to this question I just asked as I, my wife was gracious enough. She purchased the present and wrapped the present but I got to be the fun uncle who who actually carried it to, into my, my niece's backyard and I handed it to her and she said, Uncle Bri, what is this? And I, I had this realization like, I've got no clue what I'm handing you right now. And my all of a sudden I thought, this is like my prayer life so often. Mm. I'm offering myself to God and yet I don't have a clue what's going on in me, what's bothering me, what's yeah. what I'm... Uh, celebrating what I'm struggling with. I'm just, and so really to, to not know oneself is almost reduces this relationship that you're describing God wants so badly. It's almost like a passing in the hall with someone yeah. like, Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks. Yeah. See ya. You know, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I, I, I often say my wife, Sarah and I have been married for 26 years. And I often say that we married each other's false selves. Like we were so mm. young and we didn't know one another. And it really took me being called out by a seminary professor back in the day in the mid nineties, challenging me to do some deeper work, uh, to become more aware of my own story, my own pain, my own wounds. And I remember sharing that with Sarah and, and she looked at me like, what, who are you? Mm. (laughs) And that began what I call the death of the marriage that we, we knew and the birth of a new marriage. Um, Mm. But, it, you know, I, I think the best relationships and our own sanctification necessarily goes through seasons of dying and rising. And that, that happened with Sarah and I. And we discovered we did not know one another at all when we got married, which is kind of scary. 
no, probably the norm. Honestly, I'm thinking of my own relationship. We're, we're, you know, constantly doing that work of, of who, and, and it's hard because I'm trying to understand, we're trying to understand each other, but I also don't often understand why I'm acting the way I am too. Right. It's yes. why, why did, why did that freak me out? Or why did I blow up over this? And, and yeah, that, that, but as you say, that can be the beginning of a rebirth in relationships for sure. Marriage and also, uh, in, in all relationships that we have. That's right. Speaking of these relationships, let's move into work, workplace culture. Yeah. Um, this, this podcast, you know, specifically for Christian school teachers mm-hmm. and schools and, and communities, um, you work at the higher, higher ed level. But when you think about workplace culture, what's important about understanding how, not just how I operate, but how I operate with others with whom I work uh, can you give us a little insight into the, the kind of the importance of that endeavor? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was about oh gosh, I want to say uh, thirty years ago now that uh, a Harvard professor named Daniel Goleman um, introduced the idea of emotional intelligence to the world. Mm. This idea that that uh, EQ is far more important than IQ when it comes to workplace uh, relationships, success. Uh, when it comes to healthy leadership. And there have been all kinds of studies to sort of verify this. But EQ, it's too much to get into the complexity of it, right? But it has a lot to do with knowing ourselves. So self-awareness, self-knowledge, knowing our motivations, uh, what Mm. drives us, what we long for, and how we go about getting those longings met. Self-regulation. In other words, how we show up in a relationship. Are we reactive? Or are we empathetic and present in a relationship? How we socialize and connect with others. It it has to do with so many different aspects of the way we show up. But it's premised on this idea of knowing ourselves. And for so long, IQ was prized. You know, like um, this is, IQ is a sign of um, workplace success. And now we know that it has so much more to do with our capacity to know, know how we show up in relationship. And so I'm a seminary prof now as a pastor for a number of years, but I'll often start my semester with my students saying, hey, one of, one of my values is to know what it's like to be in relationship with me. And I want to offer that back to you. I want us to be honest about how we experience one another. And so I give them permission, even as their professor, to come to me if they experience me as angry or distant or confusing. And I had a student show up in my office before, before we shut down, before COVID, and he said, I, I'd love to give you some feedback if you're open to it. I said, sure. Yeah. And he said, you know, well, there are times where I experience you as really present, but then there are times where it's just like you, you go away and you'll be mm-hmm. walking through the atrium at the seminary and I'll, I'll say something to you. And it's like, you don't even hear me. You're, you're kind of like making a beeline to the, you know, the coffee pot or something like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was such a gift to hear that. And I had to ask myself, so what is it? What, what's going on inside of me? And it, it required me to kind of look at how I show up at work, how, how anxious I am at times, and how my anxiety shows up in community with others, how preoccupied at times I am, and how distant I show up to others. And so that's the kind of emotional intelligence that we're talking about. And mm. I hope that we grow in as Christian school teachers, administrators, leaders, and more. Hmm. Oh, Amen. Yeah, I remember a time with a, a friend, a good, really a good friend of mine. I was really, I just kind of, nothing came out of my mouth. But I think in the back of my head, 
I was angry at this person. And it took me even a couple of weeks to realize that I was angry because I had just kind of discounted a few of the things he'd said. And, and I realized like, what am I doing here? And it, it, as I thought about it, it went back to conversations maybe a month prior in which he had shared a really cool success he'd, he'd had with a student who was, who was kind of a, you know, a troublemaker in class. And, and he really had a cool connection and a, and a really helpful conversation with this young man. And all of a sudden I realized that it was as though my identity on our staff was being threatened because I mm. viewed myself as that, that was one of my skills or one of my strong suits that I connect with kind of the, the outsider type kid. And this kid was, was one who I hadn't really connected with. And so in hearing my friend's success, I thought my identity, my place on this staff was threatened and it came out in this jealous bitterness. Yeah. And, and like all that was going on over the course of maybe a month. And it, it took me time to really realize and recognize and be able yeah. to say, and, you know, in prayer and even with this friend, I told him this and he's like, oh my goodness, you know, he kind of, in, in this relationship was able to affirm some of my gifts. And it was just this like, wow. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of that would have happened if, uh, if I hadn't understood the importance of, of understanding what's going on. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And, and your capacity to step back and say, so what's going on inside me is really, really important, you know? And, and, um, I, it, it reminded me of uh, the early church fathers like Evagrius and John Cashin and some of these desert fathers, uh, desert fathers, I should say, not early church, but desert fathers who they really dug down into the, the root mm. sins like pride, gluttony, greed, um, fear, laziness, etc. And they would write these like expansive guidebooks. And this is like in the early centuries of the church, like pre-psychology, pre-therapy about Becoming aware of your own envy, your own greed, your own gluttony, jealousy, uh, pride, etc., and that's exactly what we're talking about here. Like something, something, something was stirring in your heart, right? Some there was something that was poked or provoked within you to say, "Okay, Bryant, what's going on in you right now? And how how might I attend to my own heart so that I can show up?" as a more wholehearted, flourishing person in relationship with my team. Mm. So you, you use the language of attending to, to your own heart. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific practices that yeah. a Christian school teacher or anyone can employ just into their daily rhythms to get better at this? Like, yeah. what is it that, that we can actually do to, to take a look at what's going on in our hearts and minds? Yeah, so I, there are a couple of things. Uh, one one aspect of this is just generally getting to know your own story. And when I say that, uh, I'm talking about get, getting to understand the rhythms of of your family story, some of the habits, some of the routines. I, I have my students at times do something called a, a genogram where they identify particular behavioral patterns or relational patterns. I was talking to a pastor yesterday who was talking to me about how his family liked to joke, but they were very avoidant of harder emotions, you know? And so how, how then does that show up in his life and his marriage today? And so I think our story is one part of that. I think from the world of emotional intelligence and the research of Daniel Goleman, I think another piece is awareness, a basic sense of self-awareness, like this sense of, of um, what's going on in me in the present moment. What am I feeling 
Uh, what am I observing about my emotions? What's my mood? Uh, how did I wake up this morning? You know, it's, so often we'll wake up and we'll be a little bit sideways and we'll just dismiss it or we'll disconnect from it rather than saying, so what's, what is going on mm. and paying attention. And, and so it begins with like basic habits like that. I have a um, nesting doll on my desk and it's basically there to remind me of what you just said, to be curious about my own life, my, my own uh, I, maybe motives or how I'm behaving. Like what's going on? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? Yeah, that's a, that, that's exactly it. Is getting to know your motives. What's underneath that? What, you know? So, we we show up in relationships, and often, you know, you and I are in West Michigan. We're in a very polite, very nice subculture, right? Mm. But we know oftentimes that there's a lot more going on underneath. And so, someone someone says, "Oh, bless your heart, thank you so," much. And, and then we sense a kind of anger underneath it. And we're like, "Oh, mm. wait a second, there's a lot more happening there." And, I, I really want us to show up in more honest ways. And that doesn't mean that we show up like with, if I'm angry in the moment, I just show my anger. It does mean, and I, I often say this when I, I relate it to faculty meetings at the seminary, and I'm sure you have, you have uh, team meetings with your teachers and totally. stuff like that. And, um, you know, there, there was a time when uh, there was a particular faculty colleague who was pretty reactively angry and we talked a little bit about it. And I said, well, what, what would it look like for you simply to notice that you're angry and to say, hey, you know, a few minutes ago when we were talking about such and such, I noticed that I was getting angry. And I'm kind of curious about that. But I wanted to bring that up and just say, hey, something something was going on inside of me. And he was like, wow, I've never thought about it that way, right? <laughs> but it, it allows us to be grown-ups in conversation and to take responsibility for our emotions. Chuck, you wrote a book called Wholeheartedness that I just absolutely loved. I'm picturing what does wholeheartedness look like in a classroom? Uh, one of my first years as a teacher, I had a mentor teacher pull me aside, and I'm so grateful for this uh, these words that he kind of called me out and said, Brian, you know, I, I think you'd be a lot better off. I think your classroom would be a lot better place if you weren't so concerned with being liked. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's this realization that like, Oh yeah, like that's what I'm after in, in trying to make jokes or, and I, I just want to be liked and, and realizing that I think was a step toward wholeheartedness as a teacher. How would you describe, or what do you envision as, as kind of a, a classroom teacher being wholehearted, what, what is the impact of that, that space, that classroom? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you see a wholehearted person is a person who is anchored and rooted in a sense of their deep identity in Christ. I often talk about it as um, the experience of oneness and worthiness in Christ. And so we're not looking to get our worthiness from some other substitute, you know, from the accolades of, of uh, the stage or the approval of a student or parent, or, but we're living from our core. And, and the reality is, is that uh, for as much as we grow up and, and, and try to like get over this, we never really get over it, right? I mean, <laughs> who among us can actually say like, oh, that doesn't matter anymore. I'm just living from my center. But but it is to say that we can be on that kind of journey and we can become aware. Like there, there are simply times when I remember preaching. We've got a big church here in West Michigan called Mars Hill Bible Church. And uh, Rob Bell was the pastor for a number of years there. And uh, I, I got to preach there maybe three years ago. And I probably have never worked harder on stage um, hmm. and never come off a stage more exhausted 
And as I looked at what was going on, I realized, well, you know, this, this stage has um, seen the likes of, of Rob Bell and Kent Dobson and others like that who, are, you know, are big personas and show up in a way that I, I don't really show up, you know. And I, so I was working hard to, to fill the stage and working hard to, hmm. for, for, you know, to, to live up to the, the kinds of people who had actually taken that stage. And I felt so depleted later that day um, and so tired. And it was a deeply unfulfilling experience, if you know what I mean. And so hmm. we recognize that about ourselves. And that doesn't mean I, I, you know, I beat myself up for the next month. Oh, how terrible you are, Chuck. And I can't believe you do that. It's simply a, a matter of, of looking at what was going on and recognizing, as you said earlier, motivations. What, what I wanted, what I went into it looking for, and how I went about trying to get it. And it was a good learning experience. Hmm. And classroom teachers, we do that all the time. There's this constant comparison. Mm. You talk about a bigger persona that's so easy to fall into, to, to even hear through the walls a teacher's voice next door and hear students laughing in response and to think, I am not that. And yet to be healthy, to be wholehearted, to realize the way God has equipped me or the, the teacher next door differently to invest in the lives of our students. Um, that's an that's a important journey to be on. That's right. That's exactly it. Chuck, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Any last ideas that you think would be particularly helpful for schools, Christian schools? Yeah, well, I mean, what strikes me, and my, you know, both of my daughters, uh, my oldest is a graduate of Holland Christian, my youngest goes to Holland Christian, and one of the things that I think I've observed in over the years, in you know, in school teachers in general, in Christian schools in particular, is how hard you all work. <laughs> it's exhausting work and and often thankless work, and so much, so much behind the scenes that. Uh, in my work with Christian school teachers, school teachers in general, I've often had to say, you need to be really intentional about the kind of things that you and I are talking about in this conversation, Brian. You've got to be really mm -hmm. intentional about self-care, of taking some time away, taking some time for yourself, of asking, so what's going on inside of me? Um, a lot of the school teachers I've known over the years are helpers. And so they'll give and give and give to the point of exhaustion. And so, and yet God, says, I love you. I see you. I see what's going on. I see how exhausted you are. And I want to take care of you. You're taking care of everyone else. You know, um, I want to take care of you. And so I just say, take God up on that and take some time for self-care. Take some time in silence. Be still, be quiet before the Lord and allow yourself to be cared for. And I think that that's just sort of a vital practice for, for those of us who are teachers in general. Hmm. Oh, amen. So that's wonderful advice, my friend. Chuck, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're somebody who's challenged me in important ways to think about the things we're talking about today. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with Christian school teachers and Christian schools who are part of CSI. Hey, you're welcome. So I'm grateful for you, friend. Hey, guys, I want to offer a practice that's been incredibly helpful to me as a teacher and just as a, a person in general and as a follower of Jesus over the years. I'd say for most of my life, prayer was so abstract and, and just really a concept. I would have told you prayer is really important, but I didn't know what it looked like to be a person of prayer. I didn't really know what it meant to pray until probably 15 years ago or so. I started prayer journaling. And what that means for me is it's 
just like what you might think of as normal journaling, but I'm just intentionally in the presence of God as I explore what's going on in my heart and mind. I can't think of another practice that has been as transformative in my life than prayer journaling. Sometimes I have like a really strong emotion, right? And then it's fairly easy to delve into what's going on. But most of my days are just kind of normal Thursdays, right? Just kind of blah or on the surface. And if you just don't know where to start or don't know what to say, what I found really especially helpful is using prompts and not just any old prompts. But when you look at the Bible, there's one character who asks more questions than anyone else. Any guesses? It's God, which is just wonderful for being the all-knowing creator of the universe. He asks so many questions. I found these to be such a wonderful starting point as I begin praying in this journal form. God asks questions like, what are you doing here? Where are you going? What do you want? Who told you you were naked? Can these dry bones live? And maybe just the most perennial question for my prayer journaling is, where are you? This comes from Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and they realize they're naked and so they hide from God. And we get this beautiful image of God walking in the garden. Does he know where they are? I assume he does. <laughs> but instead of saying, Adam, Eve, get out from behind that tree. I see you. Instead, he's walking around saying, Adam, Eve, where are you guys? He's asking, where are you? There's just something relationally different, right? About, hey, there you are versus where are you? And I found that's been such a powerful place to begin. As though God is asking me that question, Bryant, where are you? And of course, in this one question, there are about a thousand others that have helped me get beneath the surface layers of who I am and to really wrestle with what's going on in me and to offer it to God. So give it a try. Maybe incorporate this one or two days a week into your natural rhythms. I committed to taking time from a work period every week and I cannot tell you how worth it it has been. Not just to get to know myself, but to get to know myself and then offer myself to the living God. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation with Chuck. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.